Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. At the end of January, NASA announced they're at capacity with respect to the International Space Station, cruise, cargo, and systems. But even before that announcement, private companies began developing their own concepts for free-flying space stations, as well as ways to expand the capacity of existing and future space stations. And one of those companies is Think Orbital, which is developing the Think platform that would expand the capacity of an existing orbital outpost. And my guest on this edition of the Xterra podcast is Sebastian Asprella, CEO of Think Orbital. Sebastian, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me, and thanks to your audience also for 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 having myself and Think Orbital on your wonderful podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. Let's start out just talking about ISAM and what is the Think platform. Fantastic. So yeah, I mean there is there is a few acronyms being coined out there, but ISAM in particular is in space assembly and manufacturing. Some people would call, know about it awesome in the past, but effectively it's a way to categorize um, quite a few applications that are critical uh, for commercialization of space, industrialization of space, and also for defense. And um, and yeah, where, where we come in with our thing platform, in fact, uh, it's a slightly different way to um, to to basically manufacture infrastructure in space. Historically, uh, we have humanity has been manufacturing. Um, uh, the, 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 the sort of the cylinders that you see for the international spaces, this infrastructure here on Earth, as big as you can fit it inside the, the fairing of a rocket, and then you know putting them together in space with extravehicular activities. And where we come in is, in fact, we want to kind of do away with the tyranny of the of the rocket fairing and stack the parts inside the rocket fairing, very much like you see IKEA, for example, or flat pack furniture, and with a combination of uh, robotic manipulation, electron beam welding, and, and a few other nice little tricks uh, to be able to assemble that infrastructure in space. And, and the benefit from that, it, it may be obvious on the way I presented it, but it's just that you can scale. You can have you know, four times the full international volume of the space station, the International Space Station, in a single launch where it took over 40 launches for the International Space Station. And we strongly believe that this is the only way to allow industry, manufacturing industries to be able to access space in a way that is cost-effective, in a way that they can benefit from, for example, microgravity to actually do products or parts for products. So how then does Think Orbital utilize that concept and what are some of the products that you're planning? I think that the initial Think platform is going to be an expansion module, but then you've got other things on the books as well. Yes, absolutely. So we have what we like to call two major products. So it's the Think Platform 1, which is the one you were alluding to, Tom, and the Think Platform 2. The Think Platform 1, we see it as an expansion or an augmentation for free flyers. Um, you know, it could as well be the International Space Station, but as well many of our friends like um, the you know, the people from Orbital Reef, like Blue Origin and Sierra, as well as Action Space, NanoRacks, and Northrop as well. It's a way for them to uh, be able to expand their uh, product offering with large volume for potentially storage, um, research, um, or any any other things that they would probably need higher volume at low cost. Um, and where our second product comes in, um, and, and so the first product uh, would normally be around 300 to maybe you know 800 cubic meters in space on current launch vehicles. And the second product, which is the platform two, most likely a free flyer, 
um, that provides about 4,000 cubic meters of space using Starship. So it's quite a, quite a big leap uh, forward. Um, and the second platform most likely will be used for applications around active debris remediation. And, and what this means, maybe for the audience that may not be so familiar with this, is that there's, there's quite a large amount of junk, um, you know, free flying, so orbiting our, our beautiful planet. And, uh, and this is like, to get worse, the more we access space, the more we launch satellites. Um, so we need to have a way um, to be able to mitigate the risk that this junk uh, poses for other existing satellites, even infrastructure that is vital for us, like GPS. Um, so being able to have a big platform like a Think Platform 2 as a way station that can actually capture some of that debris or can be um, like a shipyard where that debris is being brought to. And then perhaps for you know, repurposing the debris either for refueling or maybe deorbiting the whole, the whole sphere itself. It, it's um, it's a, it's quite an improvement in terms of other alternatives on, on active debris remediation, and and in parallel to that, what we feel the killer app is to be able to manufacture assets mm-hmm. in space. And and while we are not looking ourselves to manufacture, we're more like if you imagine more like a real estate developer in space where we provide, you know, the infrastructure, the, the you know, the electricity, all, all the things that you need um, for you to be able to manufacture. Um, we certainly see that um, as potentially the killer app to be able to support other companies, be it, you know, sm- smaller startups to, you know, f- fully fledged um, big, big manufacturing organizations for them to be able to, um, to access space, to commercialize the products um, and uh, and be able to reap the rewards of, of what this new space economy will bring to Earth, I think, overall. I can go a little bit more in details if you're interested. I think we can do that in a little bit, but I'm getting the, the picture in my head because I'm old. <laughs> and, you know, when you watch things like the Star Trek movies and they had their big space docks and they're assembling uh, enormous spaceships in space with a lot of people around, but the concept that you have here is it's going to be done far more robotically and maybe not have quite the risk to people as they go up and try to manufacture on a small scale here and maybe in the future, something much larger. Uh, absolutely, yes. So um, perhaps giving a little bit of background, um, we believe that the future of humanity is in space. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a high frontier, it's the next destination. I think we are natural explorers at heart. Um, and one of the um, bottlenecks that we see in, in the future is that sort of space in space, that large volume space, um, not so much for human-related activities, um, because that I think is relatively covered, at least for the next maybe decade and a half, uh, but very much when it comes to industrialization space. And we've seen historically the bottleneck has been on launch, but thanks to the likes of, of SpaceX, and, and we have, you know, um, some team members that are ex-SpaceX and thanks to them very much about you know how far they have gone and, and how much cadence we have put launch now and reliability and especially now when Starship comes online and how much we can put up into space. But the challenge would be, you know, what do we do next? Um, and in terms of what do we do next, uh, yeah, definitely we need to have those large volumes in space. And when you start thinking about how hazardous space is towards human life, then uh, and and in parallel to that, thinking how can you de-risk being able to provide that infrastructure um, cost-effectively, faster? Uh, that's why um, you know the use of robotic capabilities and and you know the technology has gone so far these days um, that 
it's it's no longer our let's say it's no longer our biggest challenge the technical the technical side or the engineering side uh, to be able to have the thing platform operating in space you know we're looking at you know five to seven years from now one of the big thing platforms here when you talk about being a, basically a real estate developer in space, I, I'm thinking that are are you going to be basically putting up a shell and then, as they say in the real estate business, build a suit? Um, and who does that? Who does that build out on the interior of the of the the spacecraft? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So um, yeah, we we are we see ourselves as a real estate developer in space. We do see some operational activities, for example, you know, annual maintenance and providing all the utilities that you would need to be able to, um, to you know, basically do your business in space. Um, now, regarding the interior feed out, there are some elements that we will most likely develop ourselves as well, especially when it comes to slightly simpler feed outs. Uh, but for sure, one of the areas that we we are not planning to um, dive into would be the actual machinery for you to be able to manufacture in space. You know, the actual um, process. um, And let's say if you're looking at, I'm not sure, you know, the the details around whether it fits to do with semiconductors or even organs. So these kind of technologies, we are not planning to develop ourselves, but what we are working towards is with partners that are planning to do that, to be able to provide them the environment that they need, to be able to provide them with the stability that they need. So that suit or that, as you call it, I think nicely, that, that suit, that casing, it's um, it's tailored to, you know, for them to be able to go and bring in their, their machines and the things that they need to be able to, for them to do their business. How did Think Orbital get started, Sebastian? That's a great question. So, um, we're now three co-founders. Um, we were originally two until um, until not not that long ago, and um, I think it's a mix between a, a passion for exploration, as I mentioned earlier, a passion to solve um, real-world um, deep tech engineering challenges, um, and um, and I think a possibility to be able to accelerate humanity's access to space, accelerate the commercialization of space. And all of this, funny enough, came together during, um, you know, full lockdown, COVID lockdown. And uh, whereas one normally would be part of forums and, you know, activities that would require human presence, I met with my first co-founder, Boytak Hulub, um, Dr. Hulub, um, who also came out with founding thesis for Think Orbital on a very obscure deep tech space um, engineering forum uh, on Discord, and uh, it was kind of lo- love at first sight. Um, he was looking for somebody um, who had an understanding of engineering, but also had a very strong business understanding as well. Uh, and I was looking for somebody who had some understanding of business, but a deep understanding on the engineering side. Right. So um, yeah, I mean, and from there, Think Orbital was funded and op- started operating April, twenty twenty one. Um, so we are not far from two years now, and and, and Tom, it's, it's been a blast. It's been just amazing. I could have not dreamt how many wonderful people I met, like yourself. We had over two hundred discovery calls, and um, and the team has been growing now. We're we're thirteen team members strong. We have a, an amazing group of seven advisors, and um, it, it's just yeah. I mean, and, and so many partners and friends across the industry. It's just wonderful, really, truly wonderful. What was the process like trying to convince investors that you had a product that you could actually get into space? Well, I think in one hand, the the investors we have so far, the approach is them wanting to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and these are mostly our who became our advisors, even team members. So people who had a deep understanding of who we are uh, at an individual and a team level, um, who have a deep understanding also of our technologies uh, and, and the way we're actually building up Think Orbital. Um, uh, but but it's, and and we we grew from there. I mean, we have uh, we we moved from a little workshop in Portland. We have our headquarters uh, in, in near Denver in Colorado, uh, where we have a lab and an office. Uh, we've also done smaller prototypes, which I'd love to share with you a, a, a photo. And uh, we won a couple of contracts for the US Space Force, which we have delivered successfully. So there's quite a lot of things that we have done. And we wanted to do that in a way because we want to obviously achieve our mission. We want to grow in Corbital, uh, but also we wanted to de-risk the subsequent um, investors um, as the investment fund would be would be bigger in itself. But having said all of that, we... You know, we are we understand the market conditions. So um it's yeah, it's it's a it's um it's it's challenging in a, in one hand, but investors understand that especially in the market conditions that we are now, uh, if you were to invest your hard earned dollars, you're looking at investing in something that would actually give you a return mm-hmm. after the conditions have uh, ameliorated. And normally that's where you go for a slightly longer time horizon. And that's where deep tech, especially space that would normally take, you know, at least five, maybe seven to eight years to mature. Um, it's a place where investors normally look at investing, especially in the current conditions that we're in. Did your ISAM concept come from a clean sheet design or is it existing technology? Did it come from uh, from NASA's uh, technology sharing program? Where did that, how did you come up with the concept of how you're going to build in space? It's, it's the, the integration of all this technology of what we call the same platform or originally the ORP2, which is what you see oops, on this side. Mm-hmm. That's a clean sheet design. Um, so it's something that we came up with ourselves. Um, but you know, it, it would be um, it would be unfair to say that you know are there, are, are there any clean sheet designs? I mean, we're standing in the shoulders of giants, right? So when you started looking at all the subsystems that we have for the platform, you know, you have robotic manipulation, which has been used quite extensively in the International Space Station with the mm-hmm. Canada Arm. You also have electromagnetic welding technology, which is used quite widely here on Earth, although you require high vacuum. It's also been tested by the USSR, um, although at a much lower voltage, uh, and so on and so forth. So is it completely clean? Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but for sure, we, we want to utilize... Um, uh, let, let, let me backtrack a little bit. So when we look at the at the product, uh, for me, there are three key pillars. Um, and, and in the middle of that is the sweet spot of innovation where you, you need to understand, is it technologically feasible? Is there a market? So will you be able to sell the product? Are you identify, mm-hmm. identifying customers that have needs and pain points that you can address? And the third thing is, can you make it profitable? So these are the things that have been driving the creation of the Think platform. And when we look at all the substances that we need, um, we start to understand what technology readiness level each of those systems have. Are there technologies readily available in the market, which would allow us not to have to do the full research and develop, but maybe some configuration or customization. And that's where we came up also with uh, with a strategy of who could be our partners, and we've been developing the relationships uh, from them, from, from their own. I'm talking with Think Orbital CEO Sebastian Asperla on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to be sure you don't miss any of our podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Sebastian, give me a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in this? 
Yes. Um, well, first of all, it's a dream come true since ch a child, like it, most of us, perhaps, looking up to the stars. You know, we're thinking, why would they left me here? But maybe that's my alien side. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in the other hand, just fascinated um, with, you know, with, with human um I think intelligence and determination to access space, right? And and I kind of grew up in the in the sh more consciously in the shuttle era period, and um, and since a child I love building stuff. Especially one of my good friends, we, we're still friends since we were three years old. You know, just building anything like little cars and all. So I always had that sort of knack for for for, for uh, you know creating things. And um, I studied electromechanics. It was a kind of a half board school. And in the morning we had all the workshops. You can imagine fairly cold, especially winter. But we did everything <laughs> from you know drilling things to laying things to computer to electronics to electricity even. Um, you know, welding and uh, and uh, and a few other things as well. So I, I really like that side. But in my mind was, okay, well, if I understand how to build physically a product, um, you know, how do you actually understand a human a human mind to understand if you actually are satisfying their needs? So I, I did a, a one-year foundation um, in psychology. And then after that, I was like, okay, I kind of understand the human mind, not much, perhaps, but I understand a little bit. I understand how to cut metal, but how do you commercialize things? And then I, I, I went and did um, a combined degree in business and accounting, so business administration, um, and that kind of round round things off. And for uh, over a decade and a half, my my main focus has been uh, as a technology leader, implementing different products. I delivered 18 software products. Um, I stood up over 25 teams. I oversaw 500 million euros worth of expenditure. And it's been great. And, and in between all of that, I've been um, pro bono supporting other startups. But in my heart, I knew at some point I wanted to have my own creation, my own startup, and it had to be nowhere else other than, than aerospace. And mm -hmm. surprisingly enough, um, you know, with, with, with my experience and also on the side being part of this for as I mentioned earlier in aerospace, also I'm quite passionate about robotics. There were so many transfer skills um, that supported Think Orbital's growth, that supported also the interaction we have with our partners. And, um, and again, as I mentioned, I met Boita over this obscure um, aerospace um, nerdy fora, and uh, and then since then we've been sort of building the team, and we have our, our third co-founder, um, uh, retired colonel of the Air Force, Lee Rosen. Um, again, another wonderful individual, and um, he, he served uh, for over twenty years in, in the U.S. Air Force, primarily on space technology, uh, and also he um, he was VP of uh, of launch for SpaceX, um, and also he had a few various different roles uh, within SpaceX as well, with a lot of experience on on launch and also um, you know many many other aspects around commercialization, both private and government, and uh, and yeah, we we make such a great co-founding team but we would not be here if it wasn't for for the overall team and again i'm kind of going a little bit on a tangent but it's part of the answer as well everyone in our team um you know is as quirky as we are and as knowledgeable and as passionate about the mission and uh, and, and it's one of the main things i think that uh, that i enjoy with the role i have the people that i work with but actually both internally and, and externally to think orbital you mentioned Orb 2 just a few moments ago, and you said that was the, the structure that's in the graphic behind you. So give a, go a little bit more into detail about what Orb 2 is. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So uh, Orb 2 is basically or Orbital Orb, so Orb Squared. That's the original name that, that we gave the platform. And as we evolved, we became very creative and we called it Team Platform. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Um, and effectively, it's um, the, the core technologies around the Think platform are um, robotic manipulation. Um, so you have um, uh, dual robotic arms that actually um, pick up the panels, the segments that make the pressure vessel, and basically put them into place. Um, then we have latching mechanisms that keep the panels in place as you go through the assembly process, these sort of soccer ball for those that cannot see the picture of this space infrastructure. Um, and the, the latching mechanisms keep the panels in place, but the, excuse me, so they also provide um, data and power. And the robotic process continues until it builds that sort of football or soccer. And, and the reason why we have that shape in one hand is because it gives you the highest volume per weight ratio, but it also gives you the lowest cross-section against micrometerized, which is quite important, especially talking about, um, you know, space debris itself. Um, then that robotic arm, um, at this, as it stands today, picks up uh, an end effector with a welding gun. This is the electron welding technology. It's probably the best welding technology humanity has ever created, um, and um, but it requires high vacuum which means if you're doing it here on earth, you need a huge vacuum chamber, or well, depending on what you have, what you want to do. It's been used to well, I think the F-14s, um, fighter jet plane wings, um, but it's quite costly to do here on earth. But in space, it makes sense, you know, we're operating high vacuum uh, and it has sort of a, quite a deep penetration and, and low heat dissipation as well. So it's really one of the best tools when it comes to welding itself. So, so then once you combine all of those elements, you end up with the shell, you end up with the space platform um, and then adjacent to that, well, you have the inner fittings depending on the application. And if it's the thin platform one, it would be annexed to another free flyer. So you don't need to add any other subsystems. Uh, but if you were to go for a free flyer, then you need, you know, you need power, attitude controlled, radiators, and, and, and all of the other elements, which are also some of them working ourselves, uh, or we're actually working with, with other entities. We're not looking to be, you know, to all about vertical integration, I mean, there are some benefits there, but there is a lot of benefits as well of partnering uh, with well-established companies that actually have products they have tested and, and there are space-rated uh, products itself. So then once you finish and you complete the sphere, um, with the, with especially with the, the, the feedings, internal feedings, we would normally be providing the annual servicing as a minimum, but also we had some potential prospective customers that are interested for us to actually you know, operate it as well, so they can focus on what they do best, which could be either research, technology development, uh, and uh, manufacturing, and a few other applications as well. So what are the advantages and disadvantages to this construction method compared to, say, the the inflatable, the Sierra Space large inflatable flexible environment, that life system? What, How do you compare and contrast with an inflatable system, which seems to be the way a lot of these companies are going? Well, that's, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think the best way to answer it as well is that they are complementary. So I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite fond of the technology, well, especially Sierra, that they're good friends of ours. Um, and I know the, the people there quite well and they're great individuals. They're working super hard. Um, and I think the uh, their life model, which is I think what Tom, uh, we were talking about now, uh, it's it's critical, especially when it comes to um, you know of of the risk of having a gap between the the commissioning of the International Space Station, which was originally planned for 2024, now it's been pushed mm-hmm. to 2030. So we need to 
um, uh, we at the US and, and the Allies, we need to have presence in space. We need to have human presence in space. We need to have continued presence in space. And I think the uh, the life habitat will be able to provide that. It's very much focused on on human rated activities. And I think it has a lot of advantages because you know you kind of do all the outfitting here on Earth, um, and and when you actually expanded in space, you're already more or less operational to go. Whereas where we come in, we are not that focused or that hot on human rated activities, but we could, you know, take up one of the nodules and, and expand. So you could have, imagine this, you know, Tom, if you wanted to go to space, you could be one of the professional astronauts op- operators of the manufacturing facilities inside the thing platform, and you will be able to go back to a live habitat to be able to, you know, enjoy much better amenities when it comes to <laughs> fully focused human-rated activities, um, you know, where there's a lot of things that they're planning to do inside of life. So, um, yeah, I see it more uh, as, a, as an augmentation other than, I mean, we probably, we probably need both. I'm not sure if, did I answer your question? Oh, absolutely. But then that begs the question is, is how does how does that affect your design process when you think about being a, a complementary uh, facility as opposed to maybe something that's standalone, how does that affect how you're designing uh, Think Platform? Yeah, so, and, and this is why uh, we have the, the sort of the two major products, the Think Platform 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And, and I say this because we're also looking at um, productizing, if that's an English word, subsystems. Uh, so we're looking at being able to, to uh, generate revenue before we we. Uh, we are able to sell these major two products. Um, and in terms of the, hopefully we'll be able to announce a lot more, uh, but in terms of, for example, the relationship uh, with some uh, prospective collaborators or prospective customers like, like Sierra, we're looking at uh, the theme platform one, which is sort of the co-located sphere for it to be able mm-hmm. to be adaptable, for it to be able to, as I said, complement, um, you know, um, expanding uh, the possibilities that the live habitat or any of the other modules within the orbital reef would be able to provide. And the reason being um, why these are complementary also is because um, the way we are advancing our technology, it makes it very cost-effective for non-human radio activities. It doesn't mean a human would not be able to actually float into this into the thing platform one, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't cater, for example, for ducking for uh, life support systems. Uh, we wouldn't cater for you know a, a sort of full habitat inside the thing platform one, but really hardcore you know research, technology development, storage, which is an issue in the international spaces. We've seen it now, um, and as well as manufacturing and other activities, which would be better suited if they're separated in terms of its environment compared to where you're actually focusing on being able to support human human life in space. So, so more of an office building or warehouse as opposed to a, a, a luxury hotel. <laughs> that's, that's a great analogy. Yes, that's a great analogy. Although they are planning to also do some some research, but they you know they, they look at human presence itself. But if you don't mind, Tom, I'll probably use that analogy as well. Okay, you feel free. Um, I'll, yes. I'll let you. Uh, I'll give you free license on that one. But but and Sebastian, I think it's important just very quickly. This is my understanding of life. And I don't want my my friends when they from Sierra when they when they listen to the podcast to think, oh, but you missed this part. You missed the other part. This is my humble understanding of life. I know it has a lot of potential. 
But let me go back to the capacity issue for a moment. Does the industry really have adequate standards right now to address the capacity situation? Um, and I'm thinking along the lines of communications, docking, the, the things that, that you will need to make all of these different pieces work together. And if not, what are the standards in your mind that need to be created? Unfortunately, we're not at the stage where we have standards for most of the things that you have mentioned of probably as far as I'm aware, not at all. Um, but it's something that I know for a fact that there's, um, there's quite a lot of people that are working towards having these standards. And and I think this, the the the, um, the need for standards is it's obvious, especially when we look at interoperability uh, between different modules, different um, different companies, etc. Um, and I do know, for example, when it comes to refueling. Um, there is a startup that we're very fond of, and also their, their CEO, who's great, Daniel Faber from OrbitFab. I'm not sure if you heard about mm-hmm. them. They're trying to standardize when it comes to um, the their ref- refueling. And I think that things like these, they, they, um, they, they may seem simpler, but it's very complex, right? To get, like, it's like herding cats in a way, to get everybody to agree on a particular standard. But it's critical um, for, for us to be able to, to, to scale in space. Otherwise, imagine a situation where you want to refill and you need to carry three or four different type of, you know, inlets. Um, yeah, it would be crazy. And especially also when it comes to, in, you know, docking adapters and, and what have you. So so this is an area that, um, you know, that we are looking quite closely. We are supporting um, a little bit from the sidelines at this stage. We're looking at what, you know, what standard organization we may be able to support best. Uh, but we are collaborating with those that are engaged. Uh, with those organizations at this stage. But yeah, absolutely critical. Sebastian, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you kind of our our exit question that we ask all of our guests, and that's to look out over the next 10 to 15 years in space commerce and tell me what you see. Well, I I see um, a renaissance of space. Um, I see a shift between what what we're working towards, this historical mindset of scarcity of, you know, over-engineering product, uh, um, looking at the light, most expensive lighter materials, not a lot of space, because you don't have a lot of space in the rocket ferry, because you don't have a lot of space in international space. So that, that shift in paradigm to a future of abundance where, you know, you can launch with, you know, high regularity, high cadence, high reliability. You can launch a lot of materials with Starship and what have you. And you have a lot of space space. You have, you know, the free flyers, the commercial destination, free flyers and Axiom operating in space, really uh, opening up uh, the, the the frontier and the likes of Think Platform and many other startups providing a platform for, you know, manufacturing industry to commercialize space, to be able to lift heavy industry, hopefully off earth, and we we'll start looking more and more after a planet, but also technologies that um, would be able to, you know, do power generation and, and a few others that we're thinking about when you master the assembly process in space that would also help, um, you know, with regards to climate change. So I think the future is bright. I'm, I'm super excited um, and um, I'm kind of enjoying it every day, I would say. It's been fascinating, Sebastian. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tom, and thank you to your audience as well. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm active on LinkedIn primarily, and uh, I, I love to hear you know, thoughts, feedback, and, and the support we've been getting so far has been phenomenal. Well, be sure to include that link. Thanks so much. 
Thank you, though. Sebastian Asperella is the CEO of Think Orbital, and that's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel, and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.